0: Don't think healthcare professionals have any business experience? Think again. No topic is off limits as we share tales from our brave hosts who will always tell it like it is. We are hashtag no here to guide you through your healthcare journey are your hosts, Taylor Dunn and Tamara Donda. We want to thank our sponsor, Uptime Health, the leading healthcare equipment and compliance management software company for bringing this podcast to fruition. Visit UptimeHealth.com to learn more. Let's get started.
1: Welcome to Hashtag nofilter Healthcare. I'm your co-host, Taylor Dunn.
0: And I'm your other co-host, Tamara Donda. And today we have our guest speaker, Jeremy Krell, who is the managing partner for Revere Partners.
1: Jeremy, it's great to have you on today's episode. I know we've been uh, working with each other's schedules for a few weeks to try and get you on here, but we're happy to have you.
2: (laughs) It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. And looking forward to the discussion today.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, it'd be interesting if anyone from dental specifically didn't already know you, <laughs> but
2: <laughs> but
1: for anyone that's non-dental listening, let's make sure you, you know, give a little bit of a background on yourself, and um, I'd love to hear how you got to your role in your career today.
2: Sure. Um, I'd love to tell you it was all planned, uh, <laughs> but since we're doing no, no filter, uh, it, it was not all planned. Uh, opportunities did fall one after the other, uh, in, in a way that I think has shaped up um, to, to now make sense. Uh, but <laughs> while you're going through it, uh, you, you're not necessarily sure, right? You're, you're, you're looking for that next step. So I'm a dentist by clinical training, been so for uh, the better part of the last decade. Uh, I don't practice dentistry anymore and have you know little involvement on the dental services side of the industry. Uh, Instead, I've really been a tech guy at heart and a startup guy. Uh, I really started in tech before dental, um, had a few exits there in the web and graphic design and luxury goods and commodity space, started an incubator, worked with a lot of startups there too. I then transitioned to health tech, uh, where I had an IPO uh, in the health insurance space, uh, and then into dental tech, um, where I led kind of the professional services side of Uh, of that particular dental tech company, um, which is now a unicorn today, then went into a little bit of my own investing just out of my own family office because I wanted to continue to work with startups um, and empower them. Uh, And in doing that and in working with a lot of dental founders realized essentially the opportunity to better help organize and institutionalize the investing space within side of of the dental sector in particular. So three and a quarter years ago, started Revere Partners, which is really the first and only venture capital fund in oral tech uh, globally. So that's me.
1: Love it. Um, I think I I wasn't sure if you were still practicing, so I'm glad you were able to clarify that um, and to and to realize what your shift was into this whole startup tech world and interest you had it's always great to hear you know how did you get to that point because you know that's not where you started off so um thank you for the background so let's talk about rivier partners let's have you know us talk with that no filter on um so i'm interested in understanding a little bit more how does your firm identify the type of companies you like to invest in um so like is there a certain company you look for um, within your, or does your portfolio range from different company categories and services? How do you evaluate them?
2: Yeah. So bridging kind of your last point to your current question, I'm a firm believer of, and a good friend of mine in the dental industry, uh, who's a respected leader himself, has said, you can, we can really do, you know, just about anything, but we can't do everything. Right, and, and that's a critical guiding principle that has taken me you know, through the steps of my career, as well as applies to, to the question that you're asking there. So Revere's portfolio today is, is 34 companies. Um, we, uh, over the last three and a quarter years, have seen a little over 800 companies in the pipeline now, so two to three a day. That means we're investing in 3% roughly uh, of the companies that we're, we're seeing. Uh, it doesn't just mean that we're selective, uh, e- even though that's what the numbers would say on the surface. right? Uh, but it also means that there are a lot of investable opportunities here, uh, e- even ones we can't invest in, although they are investable. right? So at the end of the day, we're having to make decisions as to what to invest in. We have purposeful diversity within our, our portfolio. And I mean that word diversity in a few different ways. So one of them is by stage of company, which is a tricky parameter as it moves with the macroeconomic climate. It also means something different to different people. Uh, But we have some seed stage and seed stage plus companies. We have some series A companies. We have some series B companies, now even some that have graduated to series B plus. I'd say if there's a bell-shaped curve there, we've probably invested most at the series A stage. Uh, Another way that we look at diversity uh, is in terms of the type of company. So we have some that are in the software space, um, some that are in the uh, fintech space, uh, some that are in the uh, I guess I would call it consumer product space, some that are in biotech, which are devices and therapeutics. So we have a lot of different types of companies. Um, another thing uh, you know that uh, that that there's diversity there for is really the investor uh, profile, right? That we're we're looking for. I don't mean what types of investors, although those are diverse within our fund. But I really mean the risk reward profile, because the way in which a startup company might return, uh, you know, versus a a device uh, might return, are quite a bit different, right? So yeah. we we try to have diversity there for for that reason. Um, so so there is a lot of different. You know there's also diversity from the human capital perspective which i didn't mention here right we look for diversity in, in founders and management teams and owners of these companies right we look for women lgbtq bipoc true minorities in leadership and ownership positions right we don't just want to see we're not looking for some sort of cookie cutter model of the same exact you know carbon copy management team over and over again we realize every opportunity really needs a unique set of leaders uh, so, the companies that we choose within this 34 are, are very purposefully diverse. Uh, you know, we are dental focused, uh, but within it, there are many different subsectors.
1: So, you, you briefly touched on um, the economic state and how that relates to, you know, sort of how you categorize um, investing in these companies. So, how does that change your mindset based on, you know, the current economy and where we see the future? you know, of the economy going.
2: Yeah, the bar, look, the bar is a bit higher, um, you know, to, to be honest, and in, and it is in, in, in many ways. Um, these startups, every startup needs money really to grow. Uh, and so we're seeing an, an awful lot of, you know, very, and we're, we're grateful for the generous terms that have come in our direction. I think that's largely driven from the strategic value we can add to, to these, uh, even more than the capital. We can add to the portfolio companies. Revere now has access to some forty-five thousand plus dental practices through its its investor base and its team base. Uh, not to mention many other you know strategic vendor relationships and partnerships that can be leveraged. So I, I think it it is really really around that. Um, it, you know it is it is tough to be a startup these days. Uh, capital is hard to find. Uh, it is expensive often. Um, and, and can be can be a real a real challenge uh, and so you know what we're really trying to do there is to coach and guide startups as we meet them and work with them we're trying to you know get them to a place where you know even whether or not they are completely self-sustainable or you know burning machines today um, it, it, you know we are are really trying to ensure that they are are able to you know stay afloat so they have a pathway to profitability or sustainability, right? Uh, or with our involvement or the involvement of some channel partners or strategic partners that we think we can pair them with, they would then be profitable or have a, a pathway to profitability or stability, even. Um, so it, it is just it is tougher to be a startup today. One thing that is, is good is that even though you know we hear a lot about the macroeconomic environment being difficult. In 2021, you have to remember venture capital had its biggest year ever, right? 2022, its second biggest year ever. We don't know what is, you know, is going to be the case for 2023, but we could be in line for still the third biggest year ever. Right. Those are That means big years for venture capital, uh, which is not a bad thing. And the other not bad thing is that even though all of the subsectors within venture capital are shrinking, healthcare has remained the most constant of all of them. The percentage of VC deals that are being invested in healthcare companies has actually remained pretty consistently over the last couple quarters, at least between the nine and 10% range. So uh, still, I think uh, you know, the world showing we need dentists, we need doctors, we, we therefore need the technology to support those processes. Um, so I, I, I think there is some comfort found in, in, in those facts and figures.
1: Well, I think the messaging behind all this is that if you're a startup or if you're thinking of, you know, starting your own company, you shouldn't shy away from that based on the current economy, um, because there's a lot of opportunities still available to you. It's just you have to be a little bit strategic and you have to have the right, you know, VC funded uh, funding behind you. So um, I really appreciate your your uh, information on how you kind of change the mindset there. And I really also like how you talked about the advice that you give, because that's something that's really important for these startups is they don't, they're looking to you um, to be able to help them understand, you know, what's the best move in this, you know, current uh, economy. So it's really helpful. Um, But I had another follow-up question. This (laughs) just kind of came to me. I'm just curious, are you guys um, looking to, grow outside of dental at all?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. We get asked something similar frequently. Uh, So our mandate really covers startups that have an oral health application. That does not necessarily mean that they are founded de novo within oral health. It does not necessarily mean that they are only focused on oral health. Uh, In fact, we look favorably upon when they have technologies that are scalable to other subsectors as well. Um, so you know while we may not holistically and entirely invest outside of uh, you know the, the something with an oral health application uh, we we definitely are looking at this oral systemic health link sector uh, from every everything from a software standpoint to a financial standpoint consumer products biotech all those categories that I mentioned before we definitely look very favorably upon the startups that cut uh, across the oral systemic health link
1: okay i don't know if you've caught on to my theme of questions here but i'm i'm basically trying to keep the mindset of um a startup in general and you know how they would you know approach some of these questions with you so my no filter question it's that you know that moment here <laughs> really. and i appreciate that you've been no filter this entire time which is really Really great, but so I want to know from you what is the most challenging part of working with startup companies?
2: <laughs> oh boy, that's a yeah, that's a tough, um, a tough one. Anybody who's been around startups for a while, you know, I think definitely has a number of you know battle wounds and war stories, um, so to speak. Look, I, I think there's a couple big reasons why startups fail, and maybe that's the the way to this answer. Um, One of those, I don't know what, you know, necessarily in order of them, but um, one of them is people problems, right? Uh, Especially being no filter here. uh, I I think I can speak openly, you know, when founders don't have backgrounds that mesh with what they're trying to do, when founders are early management teams, uh, you know, have differences of of strategic opinion, when that spark just isn't there. I feel like I'm talking about a relationship, uh, but really it it is that because with a startup, you spend probably more time married to the startup and its people than perhaps you do to your partner. Um, You know, the people is, the people are essential. Uh, We need, from an investor standpoint, we need to be relying on people who are open and honest with us, people who are coachable, uh, you know, people who can, you know, really navigate anybody, you know, it's not as hard to, you know, navigate through a time when you or everybody around you is doing well, but we need people who can really stick together and solve complex problems when they're not you know doing well um and i think the you know another one is startups have a really difficult time you know really truly building something to a current need and it's hard right because building takes a while for anything valuable and in that time things may have changed or shifted especially with the economic environment we have here today so you know failing to build something that solves a true problem or fits a real market uh, is is actually a very common theme right It just takes one piece of it to not be right and the and the solution starts to fall apart right if it's a if it 's a great solution, but for example, in healthcare, we commonly talk about this this payment scheme payer provider patient you, you hear these three p's if your thing solves you know some some large problems say on a population health level uh but you can't figure out the party that's going to pay for it it's too expensive or you're just not sure where the dollars are going to come from because it's not clear who will cover it or pay the entire solution could fall apart right this is where we kind of look and reflect on this you know kind of host of things that are below the sink or in a dark closet collecting dust and cobwebs and uh, this this space has a big graveyard uh and it's, it's largely for those past two reasons so i you know one of the hardest parts is, you know, figuring figuring out those two things and keeping your eye on them, right? Because people change in a startup all the time. Uh, the opportunity is is shifting, and therefore, so does the product and solution need to shift. Uh, it's not they're not just sort of one point in time questions. Uh, so, you know, they need to constantly be uh, to be looked at and to be cared for. Uh, they're dynamic. Um, so that those, I think that is the biggest, the biggest challenge, uh, you know, an investor, we're investing in a certain thing at a certain time, right? So it's easy to say, well, at that time we invested because of this, this, and this, right. But you, you're really not investing in, in one data point you're investing in, you know, what has been a movie up until that point and what you're projecting to be a movie going forward. Right. And so you really, you need to look longitudinally to invest. Uh, And that's a, that's a tough thing to do. And then to strategically support that startup as it shifts and it grows and it changes, it's a tough thing to do.
0: Yeah. And another point too, to kind of think about, especially from a startup perspective, it's like, you know, you get the right product and you maybe solve a need, but you don't market it effectively. Right. And so I think that's another, you know, kind of downfall, at least that I've seen from startups is that they have a great product, but they're not marketing it to the right people. And, um, you know, that's kind of where, you know, I like to come in, you know, and ask a marketing question. Um, well, this is more of just a kudos to you guys. So I was scrolling on LinkedIn and I saw this card that said you had me at EBITDA and I knew it was you guys instantly. And I thought, oh my God, what a great campaign. Because first of all, EBITDA, everyone throws that term around, but I don't think truly a lot of people understand what that means. Um... So tell us a little bit about EBITDA, if you can, and if you can shorten it in one sentence, because I know a lot of people, there. there's a lot that goes into EBITDA, but um, I know people toss that term around. And so I feel like that's a good place to start. And then also, what made you guys come up with that marketing campaign?
2: Yeah, absolutely. First, you know, holistically, to your point around marketing, we live in a very interesting time and culture for that uh, in this country. Uh, again, no filter, um, you know, certain people or parties can... You know, say their point of view. And whether it is factually correct or incorrect, if you say it loud enough and you say it enough times, it is proven that it, it will work at a population level here. Uh, and so that, that's something you have, every company has to kind of contend with uh, how much to use or not use that kind of power. The other thing is we come out of, you know, historically there's, there was a dot com boom and era, there was a direct to consumer sort of subscription boom and era. A lot of those companies, uh, you know, succeeded by burning an awful lot of money uh, in various marketing channels, and that's not sustainable. Uh, and so how do you, how do you get your voice out there, but without, you know, selling the whole farm for it, right. Uh, is, is another one. And then in this professional channel, you know, dentistry, medicine, wherever you are, how do you go through the right means of, of education and communication, but it be, be quick enough, right. Quick enough to adoption. Uh, you know, versus individually educating and instructing, you know, what might feel like every single provider uh, in in the profession. So that that is the challenge, um, you know, especially in this in this space. Yeah, EBITDA may be um, one of the most ridiculous financial terms uh, I have come across inside and outside of dentistry. For those who aren't aware of the definition, and not to dig too deeply in or bore anybody, but it's right. It's earnings before uh, interest taxes. Uh, depreciation and amortization. Lots of clunky, convoluted terms in there. And we, we use that for a few different reasons. Actually, at, at ADSO, that conference, we had these as huge floor clings posted on the floor. Uh, we also use the, the graphics for, for social media. I like it because it kind of plays to, to both sides um, in a witty way, right? Or what what I think is, is a clever way. Uh, to, to the startup, it, it, you know, we don't look at EBITDA. Right, EBITDA is a you know a somewhat of a private equity term. It's somewhat of a, a backwards-looking term. It's somewhat of a, a term that gets towards this conversation of profitability. That's not a startup, right? Startups are are growing. You know, we base this on on revenue projections uh, and projected multiples. Uh, we we don't really use EBITDA, right, in, in the startup world. So it's it's somewhat of a um, a joking term among startups, right? Because they know that, especially in dentistry, when they're trying to sell into these practices, into these DSOs, dental support organizations, into these uh, GPOs, group purchasing organizations who do use EBITDA in their daily business of dental practices, um, you you know, they don't, right? And, And it gets into this, we butt up heads against, you know, those that think with a PE mindset, we spend a lot of energy at Revere too, trying to translate between these VC terms that a VC fund and a startup might use and look at as primary financial metrics for growth and sustainability versus what private equity looks at, right? When they're dealing with a very different type of business that's operations heavy and and human capital intensive, right? So, you know, they're different. I also think that it's a somewhat witty and clever, you know, sort of term on the, even on the investor, you know, side that comes from private equity or the dental practice or DSO side, because quite frankly, I'm not even convinced EBITDA is the best metric over there either, right? Um, you know, from the practice-growing world, I, I most commonly used free cash flow. Uh, I think it's a much better method, uh, you know, than than at least solely looking at EBITDA. Um, yet EBITDA gets thrown around, and the multiples on EBITDA get thrown around by the bankers, the M A advisors, the brokers, the you know everybody else, uh, you know, in 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 the space. So. Uh, we thought that was witty kind of both on the startup you know vc side as well as in a way on the practice pe side yeah uh, it's I, totally
0: good I got it right away so yeah. i absolutely loved it i thought it was a great campaign and it also it makes you ask questions too as somebody that may not know they can you know see that and ask a question like what do you mean by this you know and i feel like the the campaigns that make you ask a question are the most successful so kudos to you guys on that one um And then also, you know, I think as a key takeaway, you know, we always like to give people something to take home and try to think about or maybe, you know, set goals for. Um, What are three things that you can tell somebody that's trying to prepare themselves for evaluation? Like, what should they be most focused on right now?
2: Yeah. So, you know, from my perspective, entrepreneurship 101, we, we reward progress over perfection. Right? We're not looking for a perfect picture. In fact, I, I'm scared by a perfect picture. Right? When somebody comes onto a pitch and shows me a deck and walks me through a demo and tells me about the financial you know, narrative of the company and everything looks clean and tidy and perfect and buttoned up, I, I'm sitting there sort of shaking my head in a way and saying, this cannot be true. This is too good to be true. And now I'm going to have to do a whole bunch of work, diving through the details to find out what is not right here. Right, I have much more appreciation for the founding team That comes on and tells us what we've done well and what we have not done well um i I have to say one startup that pitched me they were in the ortho space and this was a long while ago and they came to me and and you know told us about the software and gave us a demo and you know the financial pitch and everything And then they said you know jeremy where we really think revere can plug in is we do have a great product Our, our our physical product is exemplary and we think a differentiator our software stack is coming along, but is earlier stage. Uh, dentists don't like to use us right now, right? It, it is a great product and it has a place in this market, we feel. And there is consumer demand for this too, but they, they just don't love to use this, right? And so we need to shift and grow the experience here to be something that really does mesh well with, with their workflow and what they want to use, right? And I have much more appreciation for that. Right. Or somebody tells me, you know, here's what we did wrong in our financial story. We burned a little bit too much cash here. We realized it. We pivoted. We reduced burn. Here's how. Here's how we plan to keep it low, right? Uh, or somebody who tells us, you know, look, we're not a bank. Uh, you know, we, we didn't go out, out and get a third party formal valuation, but here's how we're thinking about it. And I'm happy to show you the raw data. Uh, you know, we use these two different methods. Uh, discounted cash flow is one of them. And, and here's the assumptions that we made. Right. Somebody that's raw and open and honest and exposes some of the areas where there's strength, you know, versus weakness. And they even look at the financial model, they'll say, Revere, you guys probably know even better about some of these things. I'd love to learn from you. What is a better data source for this? Or what is a better assumption I can plug in here? Right. They're, they're not as much worried about, am I going to get hammered on evaluation have to argue a point, you know, here and there. Uh, instead, they're, you know, sort of how can we be better? Right. And in terms of progress, you know, they're not fixated on profitable or, you know, some large number of, of revenue. They're saying, look, we're, we're modest, but we're growing. Right. We changed this thing. We tweaked it a little bit. And look at this. We brought on this many new customers and, you know, increased revenue by this percent. Right. And next month, I plan to do this other little tweak here. And I think that's going to tick it up, you know, another good portion. So, Jeremy, if I keep doing this month over month and I make the tweaks over the next 12 that I, that I'm telling you I'm going to make, Here's where I think we can get, right? This is a much better approach, in my opinion, than some sort of, you know, perfection projected on a screen.
1: Yeah, they're looking at the whole picture. They're not just saying, I'm perfect. I, you know, they're giving you a reason and an understanding of why they need to work with you in the first place. They're looking to you to have, you know, that expertise in certain areas that might not be their strong suit, so... I, I think that's a, a misconception there, is that you have to come in and look perfect and feel perfect and convince them of that. So it's eye-opening, I think, for some people to have that realization. It's not necessary.
2: No, failure is a part of success here, and we wanna hear about them and, and how you dealt with them and what you learned from that. Uh, we, we also wanna really see um, you know, how, how in general you plan to, to be better Going forward, right? Uh, tell us where you're at now, honestly, and how you plan to improve.
1: No
0: fluff.
2: <laughs> no fluff.
0: <laughs> um, I'm sure you'd be much happier, like them telling you this information up front, than you having to spend all of the time trying to figure it out and then realizing what it what the the same outcome would have been, you know, and all that time and, and energy that you put into it. So, for anyone that's listening, be transparent. That's all. Yeah,
2: successful pitches are generally not. They're not some perfection of a business. Successful pitches are honest pitches.
1: Well, I think that's a great takeaway (laughs) for everyone listening. So, well, Jeremy, I feel like you were just a wealth of knowledge here. I I learned a lot and I really appreciated you being open and honest um, and you being transparent as well. So this was really informative um, and I loved talking to you. So thank you for being on today's episode. And if you'd like to learn more, Um, about Revere Partners, you can visit ReverePartnersVC.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast or comment below if you have any questions for us. Thanks, Jeremy.
2: Thank you.